I was talking to my friend yesterday about Uber Eats, and I was like, they need to have a sticker that every Uber Eats driver has to bring in to the McDonald's, like when he picks up your food, uh-huh. and the sticker seals the food off, proving that that he can't eat some of the that fries. That he never touched any of my the fries. fries. That's and, good. Man. And the worker at the McDonald's just signs it, and that's it. And I said that to my friend. It was like, yo, you should sell that idea to him. I'm like, I'm pretty sure they've come up with it. But I would be devastated if I'm like watching a TED talk in five years and, and someone's like, like, yeah, it was just that simple. It came to me. Right. And <laughs> now I own this space company. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right, like that right. was the beginning That's... of my fortune. It's yeah. like, yikes. Welcome in to Price Stop the Podcast. I'm Andrew Morgan, your host, uh, alongside Cornelia Swart. How you doing today, man? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm always happy to be here. Yeah, yeah. Anytime we're in studio together, it's just it's jubilant. It's and people need to know that sometimes you know we're over the phone or yes. on the on the, like the Google Voice. Yeah. And so it's it's so much better just to be talking to each yeah. other. In I think person. they can hear it. Yeah. <laughs> There's more chemistry. Yeah. So today, the whole show, we're not together. Right. You went on the road, uh, went to a pub, mm-hmm. and you, you did a nice little Q&A and some other things. Kind of fill us in. Uh, I mean, and I'm often at a pub doing a Q&A, yes. but this time it was official priced out business. This was a gathering of journalists. It was an event sponsored by uh, SPJ, which is Society for Professional Journalists, Online News Association, and Solutions Journalism. And those are groups that support journalists and journalism uh, both here in Portland Oregon and around the country so this group was you know just a social gathering but they have speakers that come on a on a fairly regular basis and they wanted to know more about the making of priced out so this is a discussion about priced out but also some of the journalism traps tricks challenges and opportunities that were presented by the project all right, man, let's go ahead and get into it. All right. Uh, so my name's Sarah Roth. I'm an investigative reporter at KGW, uh, here with my former colleague, Cornelius Swartz, um, to talk about his career path and the recently released, well, not so recently, somewhat recently released documentary on gentrification in Portland called Priced Out. So Cornelius directed and produced Priced Out. He also co-produced a previous film 16 years ago called Northeast Passage that established, and then he established himself as a reporter with a deep knowledge of his community. He published the Portland Sentinel, which is the community newspaper and website in North Portland. He worked at the Oregonian, KGW, and then he was the director of content during the startup of the web-based news platform Go Local PDX, if any of you remember that. Um, And then he left there to create Priced Out. So Priced Out is an investigative and personal look at housing discrimination and the pain of losing a community. The documentary explores the complexities and contradictions of gentrification. It illustrates how government policies and market forces that favor the rich work together to destroy and rebuild neighborhoods and how many old residents find themselves priced out. Priced Out premiered at the Northwest Filmmaker Festival in 2017 and received numerous awards, including Best Feature at the New Urbanism Film Festival in Los Angeles, was featured as a special selection at the St. Louis International Film Festival and the Young Film Market in Sorrento, Italy. So really jet set there. (laughs) 
<laughs> so Cornelius, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank, thank you. And uh, just so people know, we're also recording this for our podcast. We have a, a podcast called Priced Out, the podcast in which we discuss issues of gentrification, housing, and discrimination, not just in Portland, but in cities around the country. So uh, I think I just want to turn around so I can so you guys can see us here a little bit. I think one of the themes here is multitasking uh, and multimedia journalism, which means you're constantly. What's no, that? they're not. So they're if, turned on. They're just not. It's not a PA system. It's right. we're recording for the podcast. So, so we'll try to be as loud as we possibly can. So if you can't hear now, you'll be able to hear it in about two weeks when we post it. <laughs> um, yes, but multimedia journalism to me means always having too many objects, too many pieces of gear that you don't know how they work, and uh, half of them never work anyway. So um, thank you for having me. Yeah. So I think we wanted to start off by showing a few clips from the film. So why don't you tell us what this first clip is that we're going to be watching? Okay, let's see. Um, so. You know, this is a film about, about gentrification, but it's also about um, Albina and the history of housing discrimination. The film goes back and forth in history a lot. It's told in flashbacks, and it, it's told in two parallel timelines. One that starts in the 1990s when gentrification, before gentrification starts, and another that starts all the way back at the beginning of the state's history. And so I believe that this is the clip that starts at the beginning of the state's history. Before we go any further, we should take a few steps back to the very origins of the neighborhood. Oregon was the only state to enter the Union with a constitutional ban on blacks living and owning property in its territory. The Black Exclusion Edict wasn't repealed by voters until 1926. And throughout the early 20th century, Portland had less than 2,000 black residents. But then, within the span of just four years, the black population in the region would explode. At the outset of World War II, industrialist Henry J. Kaiser located a massive shipbuilding operation in Portland. He recruited workers, both black and white, from the South. During the war years, Portland's African-American population grew tenfold to as many as 25,000. I moved from Birmingham in 1944 when I was seven years of age. We lived out in a place called Vanport. Kaiser and the government rushed to build temporary worker housing. The largest such complex was Vanport City. And by 1943, Vanport had become the country's largest public housing development. There was like four major neighborhoods and there was community centers for each neighborhood. There were shopping centers, there was bus service, there was daycare, just everything. But after the war, almost half of the residents at Vanport remained. City leaders publicly shunned the area, saying that it was turning into a slum. After the war, the attitude of the political establishment, specifically Mayor Riley and the council, was that they wanted Vanport gone as soon as possible. They started removing apartments. They wanted to destroy Vanport. The Columbia River was just loaded with water. There was uh, a heavy winter snows and then early spring rains. Dikes broke around about 4 o'clock on Memorial Day, 1948. Water came cascading in about 15 feet high. 
they literally ran for their lives up to Denver Avenue and in some cases formed human chains to, uh, to pull people out. And in a matter of 45 minutes, the city was flooded. They lost about 13 people and there was no van port. The library was gone, the grade schools were gone, the police station was gone. The entire structure of the city disappeared in that one afternoon. But the tragic destruction of Vanport gave birth to a dynamic new community as thousands of Vanport evacuees began to flow into Albina. Just north and northeast of downtown, the area was originally a Scandinavian, Irish, and German neighborhood. Portland was segregated, and by the turn of the century, city leaders had already slated the south end of Albina as the area where the black population would be confined. And by 1950, there were almost 10,000 African Americans in Portland, the vast majority of whom lived in Albina. Just all kinds of fantastic things on MLK. In the 50s, it was called Union Avenue. I mean, there were car dealerships, dairies. It was a thriving street. We had men's stores along Russell there. Georgia Shoe Repair was there. Down on the corner was Lou's Man's Shop. Lou sold the clothes that we like. You know, you see us every now and then, some yellow pants or purple pants or the shoes that turn up on the end. Paul's Paradise Club. Gapery Tavern, I think, was right there. Even the Cotton Club was right over here. There weren't many empty storefronts. It was a vibrant place. It was busy. It was a hopping place. It's a wonderful place to be because you saw yourself. It was all America, USA, but for black folks. It was a heyday that would pass all too quickly. So do you want to talk about what we just saw? OK, so we just saw um, a his, you know, the history piece. Um, and I, you know, for me, this represents kind of an example of the easiest part of documentary filmmaking when you're doing history um, with archival shoots, uh, or I mean, not ar archival uh, material and just talking head interviews. It's narrator driven. This is the easiest it gets. You know, this is really not journalism for me. This is just research. Um, you have to learn how to tell a story, obviously, and technically get it right. Um, but, you know, the sources aren't, uh, you know, hiding from you. They don't want to be found. The targets are not adversarial or aware that you're after them. Um, they're not, there's no one's obfuscating anything. So it's really just, you just put it together. And it, and it comes together fairly nicely. I, I feel like that's an example of something that could be um, you know, on TV and in any public television station in the country. It just has that feel. Um, and we went with history because the film started in 2015 after I was asked to do a sequel by the woman who was in the first film, a woman named Nikki Williams, who ends that first film, Northeast Passage, by saying, you know, bring on the gentrification. I'm all, I'm, I'm welcome the new investment. I welcome the new people at this time as we see in her life, she's fatigued by the decline of the neighborhood, by the crime, um, by the abandonment and neglect. And she's really not aware of the larger forces, the historical forces that have brought all that about. She just is tired of living in it. Um, and that was not an uncommon attitude that we ran into. Um, so 13, 14 years later, 
she said, you know, I never expected it to go this way. I want you to do a sequel so that I can have the final word on this. Um, so at that time, it was the same time the housing crisis started. It was like within months, um, gentrification began to be a daily news story, um, which it had never been before. It was kind of like a specialty niche news story. Um, and so we found by, by September of that year, the city of Portland had declared a housing emergency. And so we found ourselves chasing all of these daily news stories and getting, you know, beat. There was, no, there was nothing we could cover in the daily world that wasn't getting uncovered and beaten to death in the cycle. So we were like, well, we're just going to have to make a decision on what this film's about because it's an unscripted drama. We just jumped into it and didn't know what it was going to be about. And this is one of the, the hazards of, of a lot of documentary filmmakers find themselves into, uh, in, is they just shoot and shoot and shoot. Then they take it back to the editing room and say, okay, let's put together a film. So we said, well, we can't cover the daily news. Um, there was another film called White Landia that was rumored to be in production. Some big guys, guys who had like a couple who had Emmys like in a backpack that they just filled. Um, and they had, they had launched a trailer. It was, looked beautiful. It was incredibly provocative. It was about, you know, Oregon is this white homeland that was established, as we say, as, as a white homeland and that it's continued to be so through its, its various policies. And, you know, we, we knew the story. Um, and so we didn't, like, well, maybe we, should, we can't do that story either because White Land is going to, like, they're going to, you know, suck all the oxygen out of the room. Um, so, so what do you do? We wound up going with history and a history that was really focused on housing discrimination. And we went with a story about Nikki Williams, which is a, a, essentially a personal story. We chose to tell a personal story rather than a exposition on the issue. Um, you know, it wasn't a Fahrenheit 9-11 with a very advocacy oriented voice and a series of issues enumerated uh, you know, in a catalog of issues. This was the personal story of a person's personal struggle and how that personal struggle interacted with a social and historical issue. So, so that, that's the yeah. jump off. Yeah, in the next clip are we meeting Nikki Williams here and we're looking back at, I think, Northeast Passage from her. Well, you know, so, so the next clip, let's see if I got it right, um, is really, we're going to flash back to the end of the first film and then move forward and see where Nikki is in 2013. The first film, we end shooting in 2000, gets released in 2002, and then we're going to move forward into um, to 2013. We released Northeast Passage in 2002. It sparked a lot of local debate, and Nikki became somewhat of a minor celebrity. After the film, I wound up moving to St. John's, a community just to the west of Albina, where I continued to cover gentrification as the publisher of a community newspaper. But when the recession hit, businesses started closing left and right. I lost 50% of my advertisers in 12 months, and I closed the paper in March of 2010. At that time, subprime foreclosures were rampant and rents were climbing. 
I'd been evicted without cause from two places in North Portland, but I still owned my house off Williams Avenue, and eventually I moved back in. I was lucky. In 2006, Oregon African Americans and Latinos were twice as likely as whites to receive subprime mortgages. When the crash hit, this is one of the first areas people with money hit. We were paying about maybe 900. Overnight, my mortgage shot up close to maybe $1,800. Was it a subprime mortgage? Yes, it was. You know, the best time to invest is in the down cycle. Well, people who are wealthy, they know that. I just accepted reality that we're going to have to move. And then one day a realtor showed up and was like, we're going to give you guys $1,000 to be out of this home by XYZ date. We got everything cleaned up. She came over, gave us a $1,000 check, and it, that was it. My home was gone. During the period of time where the people don't have cash, if you've got cash, you can have, make a lot of opportunities for yourself. What can we do? We couldn't... Um... I was embarrassed about it. Because <laughs> I didn't know what to tell my kids. By 2013, after I moved back to Albina, I really noticed how much the neighborhood had changed. White people were everywhere, and construction projects were breaking ground all around my house. New shops, bike lanes, and a high-end grocery store were all on their way. I was working at the state's largest newspaper, The Oregonian, and decided to do a story on what Nikki thought about all the changes. I live in the historic, and I have to say it that way, the historic Mississippi Avenue area. Same place. Same place, but not the same place. I am a full-time plus student. When I first moved here, the only white folks on the block were the gay couple next door. It went from one white occupied household to all white except three. Damn. I don't go down Mississippi Avenue just because it's so damn white. And it's not just that it's white, it's like this, I'm afraid to talk to you, look at you, speak at you kind of white. So when I do go down Mississippi Avenue, I've jokingly said I feel like Moses with a staff in front of me because, you know, <laughs> the waters seem to part. You know? <laughs> oh yeah, my skin is my sin, as usual, <laughs> as usual. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, stores and boutiques and places to shop. You have lots of eateries up and down Mississippi Avenue. We even have an ice cream shop, but who the hell can afford $4 for an ice cream cone for their kid? Yeah, I said it. And it's interesting to me, because it's like a lot of these folks wouldn't have stepped foot over here back in the day. You know, wouldn't have stepped foot over here. Like, where were all y'all when it was time to do the foot patrol? Where were all y'all when it was time to get out here and? and, you know, go toe-to-toe -to -toe and face-to-face -to -face with drug dealers and gangbangers and all of that. That's what's so weird. I live in this community, fought like hell to make it quote-unquote livable, whatever the hell that was redefined to me, and now I don't even deal with it. Are you serious? I am very grateful that they don't have on this sign a bunch of brown-skinned people smiling, looking like they're having the time of their life, because that's one thing I'm... At least they didn't pretend and do that bullshit. They don't even pretend to include people like me. <laughs> I guess what I wanted to see happen is people give a damn about the community that was there, not push everybody the hell out, then come in, build it up, and say now they can't come back. I wanted people to give a fuck about those of us who were there already. Wow. 
So I let that run a little long. I think they wanted the shorter clip, but I thought we, we should illustrate kind of yeah. Nikki and, and her powerful story and, and her ability to kind of hit the mark. Um, and, and that's a great example of just, you know, paring things down. We, of course, had lots and lots of footage there, but, you know, that one scene is, people always bring that up as either, or that was my experience when my neighborhood changed, whether, you know, wherever we're showing it around the country, or, uh, oh my gosh, I'd never thought about what she just brought up. You know, it just, it just hits people. Um, and, um, and, she, and she's always saying stuff like that, so that's what that's was what it like that. when she came to you and said, I've done an entire about face from where I was in this first film, I think totally differently now, 10 years later. Yeah, I, mean, I think that she's always said that she wanted a healthy uh, black community and that in the first film, that was more about, you know, in her view, ridding, ridding her street of, of, of drugs and, and, you know, social ills to protect her child and, and to, protect her, to protect her home. Um, but she always had a longer view of what a healthy community meant. And, and in the first film, we go into that a little bit more. So, like she says in the film, she thought when investment came that all the boats were going to rise, that there were going to be some opportunities for local people, um, and that people were going to integrate. They weren't just going to be segregated, only living right next to each other and still segregated. Um, in, in two different worlds. So, so she doesn't quite you know, say I've done a, an about face. It's more like I really didn't know what, what this was going to look like. Um, and, and she has a more nuanced view at the end of the film than she does in 2000, the end of 2015. Her, um, her view is, is more nuanced than it is in 2013. So she's, she's always kind of a, an interesting, complicated, evolving person. So we've got one more clip that we're going to show. Um, what are we going to be looking at next? Okay, so now um, we're, we're flashing back to the 90s. Sorry, it's, it's kind of temporarily complex, but uh, we're flashing again to the 1990s, and we're going to roll forward through, through the recent uh, history of, of the neighborhood, the very recent. After interviewing gentrifiers for a year, I thought maybe I should buy a house as well. My daughter was two, and we had already lived in three different places. So I bought a house just off Williams Avenue with down payment help from my parents. The truth is, I didn't really want to live in Albina, but it was what I could afford. I was 26, fixing up a house full of roommates, kids, and dogs, and to be honest, it was a bit of a dream come true for me. The city continued revitalization efforts, knowing gentrification was coming. In 2000, the PDC drew up an urban renewal district for a new light rail system that would run along the western edge of Albina. That was the greatest concern, regularly voiced by the community members, is displacement. The city forecasted displacement. And so they said, okay, we forecast that this much displacement is gonna occur. To counter that, we're going to create units of affordable housing. Priority would go to existing residents. I think more good has been achieved than, than damage. 
If we're successful in bringing an area back to life, revitalizing it, bringing more investment, it also does create a downside in that an area becomes more desirable. People who can't afford their current rents now face an even deeper hole in trying to meet their basic needs. If the city had built the number of affordable units they promised, that would have prevented the mass displacement. It would have been enough. In our film, Northeast Passage, we'd seen what happened when the Boise neighborhood adopted a policy to oppose all subsidized rentals in its area. We don't support anymore rental housing that is subsidized for people whose incomes are lower than 60% of median family income. Our perception was is that there was sufficient low-income housing to handle our needs. I want to go on record in saying that the land use policy sounds quite racist, and I think it should be revisited. I second that. It boils down to a racial issue. The very same houses that whites can come into the community and get, African-Americans are redlined and can't get the loans from the banks. One question you brought up earlier about being against uh, affordable housing. Most neighborhood associations were flat out against it. Big mistake. Big mistake. The policy was based on known facts at the time. You can only make decisions based on your reality at a time. There's a lot of things I would do different if I had a crystal ball back then and could see today. But the problem is you don't have a crystal ball. The city's failure to build the promised housing, combined with widespread opposition, made displacement worse. And between 1990 and 2013, the black population in the center of Albina fell another 60%. So, so that represents kind of some homework, uh, some journalism there, um, which is you know two two factors, which is um, the city promised affordable housing in a document um, ten years ago and did not fulfill that promise, fell down. That was a previously unreported statistic. Um, you know, at the Oregonian, Brad Schmidt had uh, reported about the PDC failing to hit the mark in the River District and South Waterfront. There'd been no reporting on interstate. Um, I knew this because I was a beat reporter in North Portland for a decade. So um, that was just an embedded knowledge that I had. I didn't know the numbers um, to which I got, you know, dodging, obfuscation, uh, changing the subject, dragging feet, and all the kind of passive tactics that the city will use or any government will use in order to, to not cough up an embarrassing detail. Um, ultimately, I was able to get reports, you know, through normal channels, um, but they were so complicated. I had to have other former housing bureau um, high ups come in and decode what these reports were telling me, um, because it was so buried and it was so, you know, statistically it was obfuscated. Um, so luckily, we had two sources awesome people who were just, they just knew exactly what they were talking about. We were able to say, you missed the mark by 1,400 units, yes or no. Yes, that's correct. So, so that was one little bit of journalism there. Um, and the other was, you know, this long sort of like in Portland, these social problems often, and, and you know, I joke that it's like, you rarely catch somebody with their hand in the cookie jar as a journalist. Problems here are like, getting run over by an iceberg, you know, or a glacier. 
It's like the problem has been going on for so long that people are just acclimatized to it. You know, and they're just like, well, that's the way it's all. And then finally somebody, will, you know, with enough of a megaphone will say, that's dumb or that's, that's wrong. That's, and then and everyone's like, oh, my gosh. And, just, and everybody scrambles. Uh, and, you know, but it's like, who do you blame for the, the 10 years of nimbyism that was coming out of these neighborhoods that were gentrifying um, like we were showing in the, in the second part of the issue, which was city failed to produce its obligation and the community was generally resistant anyway, so that was weakening political will. It wasn't just the government's fault. It was the, pop, it was the voters who were at fault. Um, so so no, one's, no one called that NIMBYism out, and if you did call it out, it wouldn't be a very good daily news story. Um, it's only good once there's a disaster that could have been prevented, but there was this long, slow you know, progression towards it. And so that was something that I saw every day for 10 years and was like, if I could write a story about this, I would, and I'd never been in a position to, to cover it. Um, and then, you know, it just surfaced in this film. So it's cinematically the worst moment in the film. It's the most awkward piece of craft in the film and everybody in the team, you know, I grit my teeth every time I see it because um, it's just clunky. But um, I just insisted on putting the, the neighborhood association NIMBY moment in there because I just feel like it's so important for people to understand the civic dynamics of how errors get made, which is it's a collusion between the voters and the government. <laughs> it's government by the people for the people. So sometimes the government makes mistakes. Other times the voters make mistakes, you know, and so this sort of good guy, bad guy dynamic and narratives often fall apart when we actually spend enough time on, a, on, a, on an issue. And that was an example of being able to illustrate that philosophy. Um, because I think in this case it was true. Did you feel like as a documentary filmmaker, this was your one chance to report on that? Because as a daily news reporter, it would be nearly impossible to report on that and then and the fallout would be detrimental. Exactly. I mean, yeah, like, would it be savory? I mean, as a, as a neighborhood uh, newspaper, I used to own a neighborhood newspaper. Um, so, you know, a lot of these neighborhood newspapers will never slam the neighborhood associations because that's their readership base. Um, that's the customer base for the advertisers. You know, so, so it's very hard to do these stories. I mean, we would, we would slam, you know, the neighborhood associations. Um, and I went out of business. <laughs> so, you know, you do, you do it at, at, your, at your peril. I don't think that's why, but I mean, um, it's a very dangerous game to mess with your own audience. So, um, so yeah, it was it was a unique opportunity to cover an issue that 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 you know had been had been out there for a long time. Yeah. So I want to ask a question that Cornelius asked me to ask. Um, are you exploiting black people by making money off a gentrification documentary? <laughs> yeah, you should. That was supposed to be your first question. <laughs> It's always, that's always like the first, if, if no one asks that question, I ask it of myself. If there's like a, like we show the film and there's a silence in the room, I go, well, why doesn't someone ask me if I'm you know, exploiting people by doing this film? Um, and of course, the, the, the quick answer is there's no money in, in a gentrification documentary, at least not the one that I made. Um, you know, I borrowed money. It's not paid back. It, it'll probably never be paid back. Um, I'm a volunteer for the project. You know, this is the, doing the work is like talking to groups. Um, you know, maybe some money will come in from educational DVDs, um, but the film is is very expensive to even insure. 
So even if nobody looks at the film, it costs thousands and thousands of dollars just to have it sit on a shelf and prevent a lawsuit or cover a potential lawsuit. So there's really, there's no money in it. And um, yeah, there's no money. <laughs> <laughs> we had a phone conversation before this and he was talking like this and I was like, well, what's the good part? <laughs> so why don't you tell us what the most rewarding thing is for you after making this film? What makes you think, I'm so glad I did this? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, there, there are all different ways to finance a documentary. So I don't want to say that, that, you know, most, you know, the best case scenarios for documentaries are that they break even or that they raise all their money to begin with before they start shooting. They pay the filmmakers and then a lot of filmmakers just give them away on the distribution deal where they don't make a dime. Um, and so that's that's the reality of the biz. Um, so it's just the, when I finance or make a documentary the way I do it is, you know, it never seems to to work out, but that that's okay because what I get out of it um, is a roll of the dice, because you never know if it, if it'll if it will provide an opportunity. I mean, it could break even. Um, that would be a huge. That would be like hooray. Um, it it might allow me to do another project, although that's really not the case. But um, you know, I I do it because I I would never have an opportunity to tell a story like this or to spend so much time on a story. Um, as, as to spend 20 years on a single story, really, and a single person. Um, I, I get to, to see the impact the film has and the issue has on people in real time at the screenings. Um, and I, I, I get a sense that some people are, are waking up to an issue that they were not aware of and that they are, they are courageous enough to, to be vulnerable enough to see the film and other people who have such a kind of a sense of like, they look at the film and, and, and they're like, yeah, that's what I was talking about, you know? And like, nobody was listening, you know? And that's like just part of what we do, right? Is like tell people stories in a way that they recognize themselves in the story. And that, that hopefully, you know, does some civic good and some personal good, like they feel better. Um, I, I did a story a long time ago for the newspaper with a guy, he walked in the office and he said, I want to talk to you. You got this newspaper. There's, there's a drug ring happening on my street corner and nobody will take me seriously. Everybody thinks I'm a pimp and a drug dealer. And I said, okay, well, what, do you, what did you used to do? He's like, well, I used to be a pimp and a drug dealer. <laughs> I was like, okay, fine. Uh, and I took, his, I took, his no I took the notes. Uh, I said goodbye, I got his contact, and then I ran, you know, ran his sources, checked him out, ran his credentials, he checked out, followed him for a couple months, he was right, the police were sleeping, literally <laughs> sleeping on the job, there was a cop shop on the corner, they would eat their dinner between shifts in the cop shop, and across the street there was a major drug operation going on, and they did not see it, the neighborhood association dismissed this guy, because he didn't talk properly, he didn't dress properly. And I would talk to them and they're like, they're like, we don't trust him, you know? And so we put it on the front page. This guy's not being taken seriously. He came, he came back to the office, said, I know this judge, he put it, he cut out the article, put it on the bulletin board in the lunchroom at Central Precinct, and they're listening to me now. Now they listen to me. And I'm just like, man, I, you know, that's what I do. You know, that's what we do. So getting a shot at doing that is invaluable to me. 
and it's worth, you know, some, some effort. <laughs> <laughs> so what advice would you have to somebody who's in journalism or, you know, interested in this kind of work and uh, looking to do something similar to what you did? Uh, you mean like kind of go, go, go rogue? Go rogue. <laughs> Um, yeah, go, going rogue is, is you should always, you know, take a risk, um, accept the worst case scenario as, um, as, as something that you can absorb and accept and, and then just proceed and see what happens. Um, I, I think the business model determines what you can talk about and the audience that you can talk about. So really carefully consider what your business model is going to be. Know your business model before your message. A lot of people kind of go backwards into it and say, well, this is the story I want to tell, which is kind of what I did with this thing. And, um, and, and, and you know, that, that's a harder road to go. So um, I, def I definitely encourage it. I think everyone should go rogue at least once in their career. And, you know, just you're going to roll the dice. And the best way you can, you can hedge your bets is to really know um, how the business that you're, you're going into work. It's a tough road because unless you have, you know, major horsepower behind you in your release, you know, it, it's hard to make a giant impact. And so the, the film has kind of been very grassroots in its distribution. And we're kind of just like slowly spiraling up to a bigger, bigger audience where people, more and more people are hearing about it. So the, the response from, say, City Hall has been quiet. Um, and response from Salem has been quiet. Um, and it's not from lack of talking to people or at least initiating conversations. And so I can't tell you why that is. Um, but I think as we, we do more community screenings and more organizations begin to pick up the film, um, we, we will begin to hopefully interact with, with policy folks more. I mean, the bureaucracy at the city has been great. Um, and, and, and organizations, professional organizations, have been really remarkable. And really black middle class folks, which, which is, you know, when you get into marketing and documentaries, um, the, the, the marketing and the demographics are, are very, very precise. Um, and if you're ever thinking about doing a documentary, you should go to a place called Filmmaker MBA, filmmaker.mba. And that'll just tell you the basics of digital marketing for film. And it's about hitting the narrowest, smallest audience possible, um, which is completely upside down from a broadcast model, right? Yeah. Um, and so. So we did, you know. So it's like you wanna you wanna reach very very small niches, and and what we found just organically is that black professionals, men and women, 35 to 55, have really moved this film forward. Um, and that without that without that group of folks, uh, I don't think we would have half the screenings that we've had. Um, and so, and that's just a surprising, cause we like, we're like, oh, well, cities will love this thing and planning professionals will love this thing and history buffs and, you know, and like just the general population of people who live in urban neighborhoods. And it's, and it's always surprising on who really, it really, really resonates with. So we would like to move a needle someday. So the, the question is, how did I gain trust given the cynicism that's out there towards the media at this current, at the current state and that, that, that cynicism is, is, is sort of earned in some respect because there's so much clickbait reporting going on out there. Um, 
So, so the question is, is, is a great one. So in the first film, I, mean, I would say I've been doing this for a long time. I would say that um, really there still is a lot of distrust out there. Uh, and it wasn't like everyone I wanted to talk to would talk to me. Um, and um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it does get better. I think the first film was kind of controversial with some people, and so some people don't want. I mean, every time you do something, you're going to produce if it's any if it's anything of significance, you're going to divide people a little bit about how they feel about you. Um, so you know, I think that my last job cheesed a lot of people off in City Hall, and they don't talk to me anymore, um, which is fine. Um, and the first film, I think, was, was a little controversial, but I have a track record that's out there, and I, and I think that people look it up, and they're like, okay, I, I know what, where this guy's coming from. Um, when we did the first film, we were really coming in clean because nobody knew us. We had nothing. I was 23 years old. I had moved here from New Jersey with another guy who was from Nyack, New York. And, and people asked us, why, is, why are people talking to you? And, and I asked them, why are you talking to me, <laughs> given the, you know, the division in, in, in the community and stuff? And, and a lot of people would just be like, well, you just like, didn't come across as an Oregonian. You know, like a lot of Oregon, white Oregonians talk to me like I got a, like a branch growing out of my head or something. And you just clearly are from someplace else. And it took me 20 years to appreciate that comment, literally. Um, to understand, you know, on the second film, we've spent so much time with so many different people, and and I'm like, okay, I, I get it, I get it. The, the 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 awkward racial dynamics that exist in Oregon, which are different than the racial dynamics in the South or in the Northeast or even in California. It, it's unique, particular animal. So, so to answer the question on the second time around. It, it was, it's always hard. It's always a lot of work. It's always, you know, you never talk to as many people as you would like. But I, I think that, you know, we just, I've been doing this for a long time, you know. And I, I have, you know, sources. Um, yeah, it depends on how you define better or worse. I mean, the numbers uh, on rentals is that, you know, the increases in rent are flat, right? Um, so in the last, in the last 18 months, Rents have stopped in de increasing, and in some cases are declining, not for a two-bedroom, but I think for one in studio, rents are going down. CoStar, which is an industry inside magazine, um, they had an article recently saying that that was, that the decline in, in increases was a result of increased supply, so um, new buildings, new construction, and the relocation fee, and new legislation. So um, that, that's what I think. I think those are the numbers that I, you know, I could tell you. Um, I, I, I don't think most people, when you talk to them, would think gentrification has gotten any better. You know, I don't think most people who saw a 30% rent increase or 50% or 90 have a 30, 50, or 90% pay increase in the last two years, you know? So, um, I, I have yet to talk about, I have yet to talk to anybody who's like, oh my gosh, it's so much better now, <laughs> you know? And, and, you know, the right to return policy, good, well-intended and perhaps good framework, um, you know, has yet to produce real meaningful results, uh, underfunded, 
oh, you know, maybe a little overpromise, but you know, that's 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 the that's the game. But um, I I don't think that that has had a measurable difference in people's lives. I haven't. I have met some people who got. Um, in fact, Nikki's um, niece, uh, Nikki Williams, the main character. Her niece actually got a loan from the city to fix up her house. She's converting a, a unit into a rental unit, and that she plans to, to keep the house for 30 years, or, which is the conditions of the loan. And and the family's talking about about passing the house down. They're they're thinking generationally about the house. They're saying, you know, my son is going to inherit this house. They're seeing it as this asset. Um, so in, in that case, those policy, that policy was a success. It's just, you know, we'd like to see more, I'm sure. Any other questions? Oh, yeah, Lou. Yeah, so, so, so two questions. One is, like, did we do digging into redlining, current redlining? And then the other is kind of like, what was the selection process for sources uh, on, screen, on screen services? Um, so we didn't we didn't do any any digging into redlining. Um, it was it was a historical um, fact that we that we used in order for folks to understand where Nikki was coming from. So the 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 describing the history of housing discrimination is is was not to like we're going to uncover everything that happened, and sadly we we have very few journalistic tools or powers at our disposal just in terms of man hour and budget like uh, it just takes so much to technically put a film together at the end of the day you have very little time to do any real reporting and so um, there is some investigative stuff in there um, but not nearly I mean like I spent two years on a film I would think I'd you know uncovered you know every conspiracy out there, every everything, all you know, un, overturned every rock in in town. But really, it, 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 the technical, financial, and all the organizational things that you have to do just to make a film completely overwhelm um, reporting sometimes. Um, and so, I would love to see the story uh, about like modern redlining. You know, I mean, hopefully we have some daily news reporters here in the room. Um, and you know, I, I completely believe it. I mean, the Center for Investigative Journalism just did a story, a couple of called Pushed Out. It was on redlining in America. They they crunched the numbers around the country. The hots, you know, they had like a data viz thing with hotspots around the country. Philadelphia um, wound up being like a big, big hotspot, and then down south. Um, but sure, I mean, I'd love to pop a bank. You know, <laughs> who wouldn't, right? So. Um, but yeah, ho hopefully there are resources here that could, could dig into that. Um, and then as far as sources go, um, and, and we had other projects that we had to, because it's a journalism uh, event here, we had other, other projects that we were doing. You know, we were, we were pulling the data on legislators who were landlords, um, which, you know, again, it takes so long to do that, right? We want we surfaced, you know, 30% of the Senate and 40% of the House in 2015 legislative Senate were landlords, income property based. Um, at the same time, where you know efforts to get rid of, you know, no cause eviction and um, and the ban on rent control failed in the legislature. Um, but we wanted to go to back 10 years, and then we wanted to match uh, those those statistics on landlords with the voting records. Uh, on housing measures to see if there was a, a pattern of influence. Um, 
couldn't do it, just didn't have the manpower. Um, another project, we were gonna, we were gonna pull the public records for, of ownership of every plat and plot on Williams Avenue from Broadway to Alberta going back 50 years. Uh, and then look at how those changed hands. When were public dollars involved? Um, when were minorities involved? When did they have to sell or did they lose it? Um, and that's a huge project. I mean, I would do that today. Um, there's where the stories are, right? Stories in the numbers. But wound up at the end of the day, I'm like, I got too much other silly things to do to make a film. So sources. Are you talking about Fred Stewart? <laughs> Fred's a controversial guy, you know, and, and I, I think there are people who don't even like the movie just because Fred's in it for like four minutes. Um, and and he's, he's very knowledgeable about the housing stuff, you know? I mean, he was there, he was a realtor. He, he, he can hit a sound bite. He is controversial. He is very controversial. We actually have a podcast interview with him. Um, and he just, he just goes and, and he goes. So, so Fred is a guy who says, you know, gentrification was a missed opportunity. He is completely counter narrative. Um, and he says things, he says things on, on, on Facebook. I'm just like, oh man, uh, he's in their film, <laughs> but he knows what he's talking about with real estate. And that's really how we've confined him there. And, you know, it's a difficult, it's a difficult choice to make, which is, does someone know what they're talking about? Are they credible on the, on the given subject of their expertise? And what do you do with the rest? <laughs> and we made the call that he was an expert. He was from the neighborhood. He grew up there. Um, he spoke about things that checked out. So he's. So why don't we continue more questions after um, you guys just want to grab Cornelius. Uh, but why don't you tell us how can we actually watch this full film or when is the next screening that you're going to have here? All the dates are on our website at PricedOutMovie.com. Go to the tab with screenings. And so... PricedOutMovie.com. PricedOutMovie.com. And, um, and we'll have a sign-up sheet here for anybody who wants to get emails and updates. Follow us on social media. Blah, 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 blah. And um, yeah, please, uh, please let us know. And welcome back. That was pretty good, man. How'd you get set up with this group? Well, I actually was a member of the Online News Association um, many years ago and was an organizer when I worked at the Oregonian. And um, and before that, I was always, you know, just a member of SPJ, which is just sort of like a trade organization. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, so so I knew them anyway, and um, it w I was happy to be asked. It was, yeah. it was, it's always flattered to be asked what you think about something. I was briefly a part of the NABJ. Is that right. something dirty? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, you know, I've, I've got a past. No, uh, uh, National Association of Black Journalists. Oh, sweet. <laughs> yeah. Like, I thought that was common sense. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, it no, it was common sense. Okay. I just don't have any. Okay. But, I, I mean, knowledge. I shouldn't say common sense. But, yeah, it, it was it was fun, you know, being a part of our chapter. I never got a chance to go any of the national meetings. Um, and I don't really know if I'm a journalist now as a podcaster. I don't know if they respect me 
anymore. You know, it's about the craft. It's not about the you know the yeah. platform. I think you know it's like it, well, they didn't respect us radio DJs. Mm -hmm. They always mm -hmm. admired us at a distance, but then they would go in the corner and have their more sophisticated conversations. Right. The news anchors right. and the writers. They were all like, "Oh, hey, it's the DJ. We love you." And then you know they would carry on other you know, other places. But they know that like. People actually pay attention to you. Yeah, yeah. It was like, yeah, these are true. Yeah, you know, stuff. So, so it, that was my attitude. It's like, yeah, well, people know me. Yeah, you right. Like, you like to listen to what I have to say. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of like I put myself above, slightly above the print media. I was right. just like, who are you? To, okay, print media, go ahead, go about your way, sir. Many years ago, uh, I did. Uh, along with the producer of the first film, a guy named Spencer Wolf, first Northeast Passage. We we did we were correspondents for a, a magazine show that was covering political magazine show that was covering the California recall election in 2003. There was the governor was being recalled, mm -hmm. and there were 103 people running. Gary Coleman, Gary Coleman, porn one, stars, yeah, porn it was, stars. Yeah, it was the guy crazy. who invented Fraggle Rock was on there, <laughs> and we you know we were, our our job was to interview as many of these candidates as we humanly could from Los Angeles, which was where the vast majority of them were, especially all the crazy ones were down in L.A. So Arnold Schwarzenegger was running. Arianna Huffington was running yes. before the Huffington Post. Yeah. And so you had this awful, like, collusion of evil, which was the the, <laughs> the regular press and and the political press and the entertainment press yes. all converged on these yeah. people at the same time. And you had... This, this, like the regular, you know, LA Times would be there and the TV news would be there and they're like shinier, the TV news, right? And they're kind of fluffier and, you know, their, their, their elbows are sharper. And then like Entertainment Tonight and all of these journalists would come in and like, just like destroy everybody because they're just so <laughs> evil and mean. Man. <laughs> and, just, and, and powerful they have people pay attention to the entertainment press yes and the shiny hair just the, it draws you in so shiny you can hear the clacking of the high heels from like you know 100 miles away yes. I'm like oh my god here they come <laughs> what was the guy's name was it tesla what was the name not tesla uh john tesh john tesh yeah. yes yeah. like yeah i credible source anything he <laughs> says i know is truth he was interviewed by Howard Stern many times back in the day, and he really didn't hold anything back. It was unbelievable what this guy would talk about. <laughs> the Bob Saget of media. Yes. Don't even get me on, on started on the Donald Trump interviews with Stern. Yeah. So that's, I think we've yeah. dragged this into we the have. mud pretty we well. Have. Yeah. We this been... is what we do when we're in studio. Right. So you take that. that. That's for you. That was for your entertainment purposes. Enjoy the off topic. Yes. And we'll see you guys next week. We'll have a lot. Uh, we have a show for them next week. So the next episode will be about terms, which are the, the language that describes gentrification. Yes. When you hear the conversation on the radio, you read the articles, you see it on TV. There's a lot of terms that get thrown around. It's kind of a language all its own. And this podcast will help break down all that code. There you go. So looking forward to that. And we will see you next week on Priced Out, the podcast. And please follow us now on yes. iTunes, Stitcher, um, Facebook, YouTube, and all the places yes. that we appear. You'll hear from us. Yeah.